0: Welcome to uh, the Butterfly Effect. It's great to have um, Mel. You back in Australia, back from UAE. Chelsea, you back from New York. I'm once again back from Coburg. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got uh, we've got some um, some uh, well, a star lineup of of guests from from a range of players' associations across you know, the major professional um, sports, which is uh, which is fantastic. Um, so we'll get straight into it. Mel, did you want to um, kick us off with the, the interest? Yes,
1: most definitely. Bianca Chatfield is a former netballer for Australia, Commonwealth Games and World Championship medalist, author, game on, we're going to plug, give that a plug as well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and right in the mix of, of all things netball at the moment. I, I suppose from my perspective with you're in a unique situation it's that it's purely for the women's game yeah. uh, in comparison to everyone else that's sitting in the room at the moment. When did it all kickstart for the Players' Association for netball?
2: Well, for netball, it was way before my time. Joyce Brown was the one that, you know, she's been so influential in our game and she was the coach of the Australian team. And for her, she realised that the players weren't getting looked after. So she was in an interesting situation that as the coach of the Australian team, she's the one that started a Players' Association yeah. to, to, I guess, go into battle against her own employer. Um, so she started that, and it, like, from my memory, it's, I think, way back in the 1990s that it was started. Uh, and then from then on, it's always been, I guess, player-related, that it's been about the players and the senior players at the time grabbing hold of it, taking it in certain directions. And um, our probably biggest movement we had was when we joined forces with Bill Shorten and J.P. Blanthorne and the Australian Workers' Union. And from then on, it became... Uh, something that was uh, more substantial and certainly gave us a lot more to fight for.
1: Yeah, And 27 years ago, it would, would have been all volunteer-based. Yeah, Has that changed much now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Not really. <Yeah. laughs> Still volunteer-based. Um, we, we've got some seed funding from Netball Australia, but that's just kind of kept in the kitty for a rainy day at the moment until we kind of find the right way to move forward. But um, when we were associated with the workers' union, Obviously, they paid for JP to be employed for the Players Association, but since we've broken away from them, now it is just a volunteer basis, so I don't get paid, but uh, (laughs) at some stage we need to change that, because we won't be able to do much more other than just the contract negotiations and be there for the players uh, without the actual staff to help them out.
1: Yeah, and just finally, to wrap up your intro, we were going to chat a little bit about equity right throughout the day. I suppose it'd be remiss of us to ask, do you... Look after the men's netball team at all? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Which sometimes
2: they they come to us and say they want a broadcast deal for the men's netball league because there is one out there. People don't yep. realise that mm-hmm. there's an Australian men's netball team, um, but unfortunately, the resources at the moment is just there for the women and not for the men yet. Yeah. There we go.
0: Our next guest, Claire Smith. You're um, uh, well known to some around the the, the world as a, a World Cup and Ashes winner, winning bowler for for Australia. Um, but uh, but now you're the um, the manager of past players program at the Australian Cricketers Association. Um, we might be going to cover some territory that's probably <laughs> you're not able to talk about because we're recording this the day after some uh, some announcements from um, from Cricket Australia and some responses from the ACA. So um, uh, just let us know if we're heading into uh, uh, uncharted territory,
3: um, and we'll
0: ask more questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, I guess a, a bit like Bianca, as a former player, and and one of our other guests, who's hopefully going to join us, Jacob Holmes from from um, the basketball side of things. Um, uh, we I'm just really interested to know, um, you know, at, at what point did the Cricketers Association take a take a um, you know an active role in in championing the women uh, mm-hmm. in the game um, as opposed to the, the you know the male side of things? Mm,
4: it's it's a really good question. Thank you. Um, and my role at the the Players Association has Um, Cricket Association, we've got 1,200 past players. So I run the health and wellbeing program for for those uh, members and we have 300 current male and female players. So I'm part of the um, negotiation team in the the discussions with Cricket Australia at the moment Mm -hmm. for those 300 members. And so historically 1997 was when um, the ACA was was first... um, Brought into power by Tim May and uh, when the first MOU was struck, and five MOUs later, um, it's looking like one agreement for both men and women, so that's a journey that's taken 20 years. It was the mid-2000s when the first group of, of players, um, myself included, started talking to Paul Marsh, the former CEO, um, about female representation, um, and at that stage, constitutionally, we, we couldn't become members, so... Discussion started and in 2009 was when current female players became represented by the ACA as a, as a body, not in MOU and not in sort of the CBA side of negotiations, but as members and able to access the various um, health and wellbeing services and the like and in 2012 um, past be my players were also added added to that um, to be able to access the, the past play program that I manage so it's been um, a, a journey in that sense but it's a it's a, a long time really from when the women were first engaged with the ACA to now um, mm. and exciting but again we're looking for what like life to be one MOU for for men and women
0: yeah and and so a lot of uh, a lot of that's going to play out in the in the Days and weeks, possibly months to come. Um, and how big's the ACA, um, you know, staff and, and resource-wise? Good somebody?
4: question. Um, it's probably around twenty, um, yeah. I'd say, FTE across the various programs um, and, and based around the
1: country. Yeah. Excellent. Um, Katie Gill, former Matilda's captain, and. Still leading scorer? Yeah,
5: just by one. By one. <laughs> <laughs> who's hot on your trail? Lisa, Devanna. Right, okay, so yeah. we need to sort her out. So she has to retire. Okay, okay. she has to retire. <laughs> we'll put something out in the press today.
1: <laughs> and uh, PFA player relations executive, reasonably new on from what I understand as well. Yep. When you when you joined uh, Players Association for football, did you have a bit of a, I suppose, a, a, a blank sheet to say how you're going to develop the women's
5: game? Yeah, very much so. I mean, our Players Association has been around since 1993, and it pretty much started off the back of the old NSL days. So, a lot of the players, they were only semi professional, amateur, so struggling, like the girls are. So, they decided that they were going to get their act together, and they actually defunct the whole NSL and build the A League model, which is a work in progress now. So, it started with one lawyer, Brendan Schwab, who now heads up Uni Global. So, he's quite an infamous character, I guess, in <laughs> Melbourne around the the sporting scenes and in the player association movement. And now we're um, we're about eight staff strong, so full-time. And then we have about six others that sit within the clubs through the player development program. So that's all around the well-being of the players. But the girls kind of, I guess we came into the fold around 2007. And the biggest issue we were struggling with was actually getting our laundry done. So Sorry, I've,
1: let's just go over that, your laundry. Yep, Lodge. yep.
5: So we had, <laughs> <laughs> we had protests throughout the team that we had to pay to get our laundry done while we were on tour. So we thought it was about time we got organised and got a CBA across the line which was stipulating that we'd have our laundry done. So issues that the girls have just don't even equate them, it doesn't even come into the men's game, they don't even think about those kinds of things.
3: What a beautiful metaphor, hey?
5: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we will it. talk a little
1: bit more about conditions in comparison yeah, to Yeah, but well. uh,
5: in saying that through the association we've pretty much come on in leaps and bounds. So 2016 we started organising the W League, so just the past season gone, and we're working towards a collective agreement for them. And the Matildas, I mean, they've done amazing things on the field and we are starting to get things in motion off the field and looking after them in a professional kind of space.
1: Yeah. So, Bianca, Claire and yourself, all former players in the game, do you think that helps in terms of the relationship um, with, it? I suppose, the men's clubs and everyone that you work with in the
5: game? Yeah, I think most definitely. I think you kind of speak a common language when you played the game, so the girls know where you're coming from, even the men know where you're coming from, so it's easier to have those kind of conversations. Beautiful.
0: Yeah. Well, our last uh, our last guest in in uh, in studio um, Brett Murphy from the uh, AFL Players Association a little bit of a different take on things as we've established you um, a player of some note a sporting uh, pro at but um, but um, uh, p- perhaps not um, at AFL uh, AFL sort of circles um, but obviously the AFLPA has been around for a little bit longer from from the others but a slightly different structure. Um, from the way I understand it, in that you know you only represent the you know the top the top level of uh, top level of athletes. That's um, correct, and I'd,
6: I'd say probably at the outset that I feel incredibly out of my depth sitting in this room <laughs> of elite um, international sports people. My sporting career was um, to describe it as average would be probably uh, <laughs> potentially talking it up. Um, uh, the PA was formed around about forty years ago. Um, 43 years ago, I think, um, it's always been... It was initially formed as the VFL Players Association for the the top-tier players in Victoria. became the AFL Players Association with the formation of the national competition. Um, Until last year, it was uh, an association that only represented the the top-tier men. Um, We had had and have 800 male uh, members, um, 3,000 former uh, past player male members, and now 200-plus female members. Um, As I said, we took on the uh, women members last year um, at the commencement of the competition or the the establishment of the competition. We immediately signed up um, hundreds of uh, uh, female players, um, established a women's advisory group to help guide us in our principles for uh, negotiating the terms and conditions of employment and whatnot for for the players and then subsequently uh, negotiated them and have been involved in discussions with the AFL on all sorts of matters since. Um, I think it was only two weeks ago we uh, actually had a formal change of our constitution to, to formally um, bring female members into the fold and to um, appoint our first female board member in Daisy Pearce. So i um, really pleased to, to now be
0: operating in, in this space as well. So some massive, massive changes, and I'd be interested to find out how much Paul's taken from Paul Marsh as a you know, relatively new CEO of the AFLPA, how much he's sort of taken from clear some of those original conversations back uh, a few years ago um, from his cricket, cricket days running the Cricketers Association, how much of your groundwork is now benefiting the, um, the AFLW? Um,
4: it's been benefiting athletes, yeah. female athletes.
0: <laughs> well, it's certainly been helpful for us to have had Paul having gone through that
6: experience with female cricketers. To now be able to bring that experience to to do with our
0: footballers, so mm. it's been it's been really good. Mm. So we had a, a range of topics that we were going to sort of um, throw on the table that, that are really quite, I think, relevant across the board and really interesting to, I reckon, just get a bit of a comparison of,
1: of the the differences between you know the the each of the different sports. Um, Yeah, I think the one I'd probably like to start with is the one that we hear in newspapers and see in the media a lot of the time is around just the pace structure of things. Mm. And I think having people from the Players Association, we probably don't hear your voices as much as what we do from the national or state sporting bodies. Um, So I guess to start, one of my, um, I suppose, peeves in the past has been that often what we haven't been looking at is is the state-based players and the players that are doing the the hard yards. And I think... um, having minimum wages is probably one of the most important things for females in sport because it's we've seen so many times in other sport in sport across the board that the top players and the elite players are well and truly looked after and they've got options of either going overseas or all those sorts of things. But the girls, the average, not, I shouldn't say the average players, but the, the majority of players um, are certainly not getting looked after. Basketball has just brought in a minimum wage, so I might just start with that across the board so we can all get a bit of a feel for where the majority of players are, are sitting at. So minimum wage... Jumped up this year, yeah. Now, have you actually signed off on the <laughs> on the new CBA, yet, Bianca? Uh,
2: I believe it will be signed off by this week. Right. Everything's all everything from the players' association point of view is all done now. Yeah. Um. So it's just getting everyone around the table to really sign it now. So it's it's
1: all been done. But for us, sorry, I'm just before we go there because the um, the league started where numerous rounds in. That's where that five rounds in. Five rounds in. Was there any issues there that? It hadn't actually been signed when um, the comps started?
2: Not really because the players, that was that part was signed off. So their agreement was signed off um, and it's just getting the eight clubs together to agree on all the little things and just to explain things because we've gone through a negotiation process where all the issues that the players had we put on the table but there's so many different directions those issues can go in and one of them was the injury management plan that we had and, and you know who's responsible when you're playing for the Diamonds and when you're playing for a club if you get injured, whose who's responsibility is it to pay for that? Is it Netball Australia's? Is it the club? So there were all these little nitty-gritty things that had to be sorted. But one of the biggest achievements for us was to move that minimum wage and all the players were really passionate about that. So we've gone from 13500 to 27500 now for... Um, the players playing in the super netball competition. Um, and so, yeah, that was, that was a huge get for us. And I, the, bit, the thing for me was it was something that all the older players who are paid significantly more than that were the ones pushing to make sure that the younger girls got looked after. Fantastic. Cricket world?
4: So in the cricket world, currently um, the the girls are on nominal retainers for the three um, components, a, a state-based contract, the um, WBBL contract and, and CA if they're, if they're playing at that national level. Um, what we're looking to move towards is a, um, a sort of an hourly rate of pay structure that has equality quality for uh, across males and females. So... Um, Again, it's, it's very early days, but it seems that from the proposal that Cricket Australia put forward in December to, to the one that's now um, just dropped in the last 24 hours, um, it looks as if there's been some really good progress in that area, um, both around the pay model and, and conditions, which I'm sure we'll talk about. A little bit in a little bit more detail. So I think the the, the gap um, between state and national that, that you mentioned that's certainly something that cricket has um, been challenged by. And in the last couple of years, there have been significant improvements in the the, the pay for our national um, 15 national selected athletes. Um, the challenge is the gap between that and then and the next level, which is you know 120. The, the bulk of, of the people that we represent. And probably even more so, the conditions and the environment in which they um, then play just doesn't give them, um, you know, the same fighting chance
1: that, that yeah. a, and the 15 elite girls get the opportunity to train in. So just to jump back one, because, Bianca, you just spoke about the National Netball yes, League. Yes, Super so it was Super, Super, Super Netball mm. League, but didn't mention the Diamonds. No, so yeah. the Diamonds is a
2: complete separate yeah. contract. Yeah. Uh, and we find in our sport it's a bit of a flip in that the girls – get paid less to play for the Diamonds than they do to play for their Super Netball team. So uh, we've had conversations about bringing it all onto one contract, but at the moment, logistically, it's just not possible. So that's why I'm quite intrigued by how you guys all run it. And Do you keep them separate? Do you
4: have them all under one contract? They're separate contracts for, for each, um, but they're guided by or they look to be guided by the same um, set of terms and conditions that will be stipulated in yeah. the MOU. Yeah. So, yeah, separate contractual documents because not all players... Actually participate in all three forms. But does the main income come from Cricket Australia for the girls that play for say the test team? At this point in time yes yeah Yeah. what we're looking forward is a a, a revenue share model that includes the males and the females so the player payment pool will then be drawn from to
3: pay for Mm -hmm. um, all the players. Just in terms of that pool, um, Mm -hmm. I know So I've been involved a bit in um, negotiating on behalf of the AFL umpires. There's always a discussion around, there's the pie, how are we going to split it up, (laughs) and more money on the table in one aspect. We know these things are complicated. There's usually an attempt to then come on in and where's that money coming from, and usually, you know, trying to make you pay for it somewhere else. I'm just wondering, obviously you can't go into detail at Mm -hmm. the moment, but. Mm How do the discussions go? Is they usually look well? That's that's have give and take, or is it a matter of no? It's time to really get more.
4: Look, I, I think the players aren't asking for any more than they ever had have, and and I think at this where we're in the luxury of saying that the cricket as a sport is going beautifully at the moment. At the growth, it's breaking all sorts of participation, um, you know, records and. Um, both male and female, that the growth has been phenomenal, and there's more than enough money in the game to be able to support male and female players. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, it's not a it's not a here or there, or male or female, it's there's enough, it's in a successful phase, and there's an opportunity here to really set that um, an equal structure in place for that will safeguard for the future.
0: I always It's always a discussion about the pie. I've never seen the pie. <laughs> <laughs> what flavour is the pie? <laughs> uh, it's, it's Savoury, <laughs> I'm not sure. Makes you so <laughs> <happy>. <laughs> but um, Katie, I mean, similar, I, I guess, an international and domestic structure in in um, uh, in football. Yeah. Um, how, do, how does how um, does how does the uh, the FFA and the W League and the Matildas? How does that all sort of you know, manifest itself um, contractually?
5: Yeah, so there's a difference in contract between a national team contract and a W League contract, and that's basically because we're looking at different employers. So the FFA look after the national team, terms of their employment, and then the clubs are responsible for the W League. So you can't even compare the two, really. Mm. So the Matildas operate, there's like a two-tier system, so Tier 1, Tier 2, and there's 20 contracted athletes for 12 months, and then those that... Are associated with the national team, but not on contract. Get like a daily allowance, and there's match payments and prize money mm. on top of all of that that go to the players. Yeah. And with W League, um, it, we're in a salary cap environment, for, for both A League and W League. And at the moment, it's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars team base to go to player payments. So the club that's, retires, that's the entire team. That's the entire mm, team. Yep. The and do they sent- have to
1: spend all that money? This is the mm. kicker.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so, the clubs receive a $50,000 dividend from the FFA and they are required to spend a minimum of 30. <gasps> 30. Wow.
2: And how many players?
5: Well, it varies from 18 to 20 on the Oh my stuff. goodness.
0: And the approximate, length length of the, <laughs> <laughs> the approximate length of the season, it's not an. It's well, it's a, about
5: a five month season when you throw the pre season in there. Yep.
0: So, it's a pretty. So, yeah, oh, It's a hefty wax My brain's trying to do the maths on the hourly. Yeah, uh, hourly and break it's
5: there. it's different because there's two types of contracts operating within W League as well. So there's a professional one and there's an amateur one. Hmm. And the amateur ones, there's a minimum payment of that, but it's between a hundred to a hundred ten dollars per week. Yep.
0: Yeah. So Which might not. There's come a lot that needs and fixing. <laughs> and so, so a um, what what would um, uh, say a, a player who's um. Not in on the Matildas sort of structure, but playing regularly for, for um, you know the Victory or the City or one of, one of those teams. What what would they be? What would they be earning? Ball. I'd
5: say that the the earning figures probably go between two thousand and five thousand. Yeah, for a season.
0: So I'm just, my brain's just processing. It's just, yeah. Put, here maybe shouldn't have put you after cricket. I think that's just, yeah, that yeah. is just chalk and cheese. Well, it's an interesting comparison because yeah. if I guess if we segue to, um, to to Brett, there's been some, I think, really fascinating debates that I think leverage some of the the strengths of, of the, the netball and cricket sort of arguments in in recent years. Um, did you want to sort of talk us through how? How the I guess where we where the the negotiations started and finished um, you know sort of a, a few months ago for the for the AFLW players. Sure,
6: um, I suppose in negotiating the terms conditions and the pay rates, we um, I suppose put the principle of equality with the male players at the heart of that, and so in terms of negotiating the the minimum base salary for the women players, what we did was we did a comparison to the minimum salary for the male players mm. and, and got to a point where the uh, pro rata amount for the women was the same as for the men. So um, it will take some time to go from a, a very initially very part-time um, role from last year and the years that go before to, to where we are now to, to full-time in the future. But the principle of equality has to be at the core of that. Um, so we, where we got to in terms of the negotiation was um, for the vast majority of the players, they're receiving $8,300 uh, for, the, for the contract. Um, for the, the top, um, top two players per team, they received $17,300 plus a, an ambassadorial payment, which includes additional work, of course, of around about ten grand. And for about the sort of third through to the sixth, seventh top player on the list, about twelve thousand three hundred. Um, we've got an increase. We've got a two-year um, agreement with the AFL, um, with an increase of around about ten percent for next year. Um, so that's on the basis that the the obligations on the players don't increase. Um, if they do increase, then obviously that would be up for discussion. But um, at the moment, it's a, a two-year deal.
1: Can we flip it around then and just go to the to the top end just to see what our elite female athletes could potentially be earning um, across the board? And you can go from the national competition all the way through to Australian potentially overseas yeah. overseas players mm. as well. Please.
2: well for us. You probably have more idea running well, <laughs> <yeah>, a <former laughs> player manager too. You're a former former player manager about that. But f- for us, our salary cap is five hundred thousand. But then we have that's part A of the total player payment. So that's split between ten players. Um, but then there's a part B where there's an opportunity for the girls to be employed, um, to have ambassadorial roles as well with different sponsors. So it gets quite complicated,
1: which is capped as well. Yeah,
2: that's capped as well. So um, yeah, it gets very complicated. Like I would say, the the best players in the competition could be earning around 150k, but that's also to do additional work other than just mm-hmm. their netball training and playing commitments.
0: Yeah, so that's that's best player marketing appearances yep. so and that's tap- no. away from
2: what they would earn to play for Australia. At the moment playing for Australia you get a $400 a day daily allowance and that's it so that's the only additional income they'll earn from playing for Australia.
1: Yeah, it's Clear? Smitty. Smitty. <laughs> Jones.
4: Um, similar um, in the sense that our, our top players can be earning um, upwards of $100,000 uh, in, in the current structure um, to for their national level contract and also to complete marketing appearances and other of the like, the average at that level would be around 50 um, mm-hmm. with the same um, opportunities to, to, to do more, to, to earn more in that respect. Um, at, a, at a state level, it's, it's less than 20 but, Um my mathematics, I think it's about seventeen. <laughs> um, I think is if if you were playing at both in both the WBBL competition as well as having a state contract, which not all of our players do. And one, not the other, and, and vice versa.
0: Yeah. And we've established the, um, <laughs> the
5: state level and ask
0: yeah. And <laughs> roughly football. So I guess as a general rule, the majority of, of athletes, I'm assuming. Perhaps it's starting to change in netball, and a little bit with some of the hot top, the more talented cricketers. And, and but we're still going to have semi-professional yeah. athletes who are juggling work and work, study, family, and things like that. Yeah. How many? How many of the netballers would be? You know, f- full-time professional not doing anything else? Well,
2: I reckon all the girls do something else mm. um, just because it's out of habit too, but probably mm. there'd be maybe five or six girls that wouldn't have to do anything else yeah. uh, in the whole competition. Um, one thing that we managed to keep into our CBA dish time was a, a 10 to 4 blockout time, so the clubs aren't allowed to organized training or anything between 10 and four on a weekday because the girls want to be able to go to uni, want to be able to have another job. It doesn't always work as systematically as that uh, because I'm sure uh, it's the same with every sport that, you know, it all creeps in. But we have, a, if the leadership group and the team agree to train within those hours, then we allow it. Yeah. Um, but that relies on the older girls looking after the younger girls who obviously aren't being paid as much and, you know, have the ones at uni. So we've tried to keep that. We've definitely kept it in there, but we've tried to make sure that the older girls realise the importance of
1: sticking to that and not letting the clubs encroach on it. Mm-hmm. I suppose that brings us, and I'll throw this open to anyone really, the whole way up between the actual pay packet for players in comparison to getting the conditions right within the, within the contracts mm-hmm. and how important, because a lot of people will just look at, the bottom dollar and say, well, they're not getting enough. But if you're putting in all the work behind the scenes to get the conditions right, how much of that is a way up for you guys when you're negotiating things?
5: I think it's it's a fair argument. I mean, I think most of the conditions around obviously offering the same facilities, around training, playing, accommodation, that's not too much of a cost because it's already in place within the men's program. So it's about being inclusive and it comes more about a respect issue with the girls especially. It's like why can't why can't we be on the main stage? Why can't we use the same facilities? Why can't we use the same recovery, you know, the same gym? So I think. Was... And,
0: and what is the what is the response you you typically see from a club? When... A
5: lot of it comes down to infrastructure. I mean, in football, we don't own much infrastructure. So whereas AFL, they've all got kind of their home base. So I think it's quite mm. easy to integrate the women into that. And now with netball going in with Collingwood as well, you can see all those supports were already in place. Whereas. Our A-league clubs are struggling to even execute that. Melbourne City are probably part and parcel far above everybody else because they have a a home base. So the women have just been accepted and they are pretty much just building an extra wing on the facility, which is now a women's base.
3: It's funny, isn't it? I think you can get closer to what feels like equity in certain situations, but just coming back from the US, I've been reading up on the US hockey team, the women. Mm -hmm. They're boycotting the world champs. They're defending champions two years running and they've decided that it's just unacceptable but the difference I'm, I've been, I'm hearing in these stories is there's sort of blatant sexism happening over there in terms of these women weren't even invited to the jumper presentations mm. for the last Olympics and they're, they've won something like 17 World Championships or mm. something. So when it's blatant like that, okay, yeah, let's boycott let's get really vocal but I think there are other elements when it sort of appears that yes we're making ground towards mm. um, towards equality and things like that. It can be a little bit more subtle and I think that's where, Bianca, your point about just staying true to the little things can actually have a huge impact because as you you start to say, well, we can do without that condition or, you know. That's right.
2: And for us, like, the simple little change that when I was still playing was we got our medical expenses paid for. Like, and everyone thinks that's unbelievable that we didn't. But we would have if you had to have an MRI you pay for it and that's $300 that you're out of pocket just because you got injured on the weekend playing the sport. So that's the biggest thing for our girls at the moment, making sure that medical is all covered for them, making sure that they get health insurance, the top private health insurance covered for them, um, and then little things like income protection, now that it has become a lot of their jobs, that if they do get injured and they're out or you know, and I'm sure we'll get on to the pregnancy policies as well, that if the girls do get pregnant, then what happens? um, They've been more uh, probably important for us to fight for than the actual dollars. Uh, And one thing for me sitting around a table with all the CEOs of the club that I realise is what little understanding the CEOs and the people working at the top in the sport have of the actual play issues and and what's really important to the girls. Um, And so it's just more creating that awareness and being able to have these discussions so that everybody really does understand why the girls want these little things put in.
6: The point you made about the income protection insurance, to me, is the most important thing that we negotiated for the AFL women's players. Mm -hmm. Um, Within weeks of the training block starting, Mm -hmm. we had players who were injured and then unable to work for 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. Now, if you haven't covered them for their loss of income, what do they do? Yeah, They're probably unable to pay the rent. So for us, that was probably the most important thing. And we have had quite a few injuries in the AFL competition this year. And that's been the most crucial thing. Um, the pay thing is, is really important as well. And there was a lot of debate last year in the AFL women's competition about, you know, players going from zero to whatever. Yeah. And anything is good. But <laughs> where we ended up getting to $8,300, yes, it is a big jump from zero. But... The amount of players who've told me that um, they're worse off financially for playing their sport mm. and trying to get the best out of themselves is is extraordinary. Mm. And um, we need to, you know, find the right balance between mm. you know, getting the right levels of pay and getting the right terms and conditions, but actually ensuring that there's balance in their lives and having the block out during the day so that they can
1: go to work. Yeah, it's really important. And that's well, probably an education process. Sorry, so mm. for players coming from a purely amateur space into that semi-professional space where they Mm -hmm. do go, oh, I'm getting 3,000 bucks, that's fantastic, it's so much more than what I've got in the past, but really when you then weed it out over the the time of the contract. We've got
6: players who are, and I'm sure all the other sports do as well, who travel for two hours to get to training every day and two hours to get home, and so they're getting up in the morning, going to work, working a full day's work, going to training, getting home at midnight, doing it again the next day, Mm -hmm. and so the... From our perspective, eighty three hundred dollars doesn't go very far when you're having to do those things and and work part time instead of full time to be able to do your sport. It's um,
2: can the clubs can pay difficult. extra? Like, can the clubs give them travel allowance on top of the eighty three hundred or not?
6: Uh, I don't think they have been. There's been the clubs have been terrific in this space throughout the year and. Yeah. Um, you know, just even little things in terms of being able to provide meals for players yeah, after training, yeah. so not getting home at midnight and having a, you know, what I do when I get home, or cereal, and having something, mm. yeah, yeah, some <laughs> cereal. So, um, the clubs have been good in that regard, but we need to take all those things into account.
4: And I would just reiterate both. I think um, where cricket's at in the journey, yes, the the pay and, and getting pay equality is important but the conditions um, in which the the, the girls are, are playing in a training both at an individual level when you talk about your know, injuries and injury insurance and income um, protection and things like that but also just the you know the gym environment the training environment mm. the access to equipment those sorts of things we we've had um, minimum standards or sort of conditions in place for a number of years um, but the challenge is that they're not um, Adhere to consistently across the country. So, if you happen to be born and raised in a particular state, you're going to have a better chance of reaching your potential. Yeah. And that sort of an anomaly is is not what we're about. You know, obviously, we're representing 300 of um, players, and and giving them all that equal opportunity is important. So, for us, the discussion has moved very pointedly into the, the conditions um, and equal conditions um, across the, the, the male and female, but also state and national, just the other um, groups.
0: For me, it always comes back to I think one of the challenges that you've all sort of talked about is the, the athlete who just wants to play at the top level, whether that's their club or their country, and the tension of, well, I probably would do that for for nothing or just yeah. because that's what I love doing versus... Mm-hmm. You know those who who actually realise that you know devaluing or, or not valuing their, their you know their time, their skills, and their, their and assets. I guess
5: that's things. what we have kind of seen. I think it's great mm. AFLW to come on board. It's fantastic, and the girls are really embracing it and enjoying it. But I've heard those comments from a few, and I think Daisy Pearce was like, "Oh, you know, I play for nothing. I'm just happy to have the jersey mm. on." The
3: but <laughs> <laughs> you do get it. But yeah. yeah, you do hear that argument come up a lot, though. People sort of, you know, people get quite vocal when you talk about um, gender equality. Sometimes the comments come out, but some of the arguments, you know, whether it's about oh, commercialization of the game so difficult, or mm-hmm. um, people will often say, "Oh, yeah, but what about Olympians and you know Olympic men, you know, or sports that where it really is doing it for the passion." And I think that's where. You know, Claire, you make a really good point around it's about equity across the board, state, national. Yes, it's gender equity, but it's about giving everybody the opportunity to, you know, make a living and do what they love.
4: And I think you'll find across all sports there's people who just love the game and, you know, people who will never get the opportunity to play anywhere near that level Mm -hmm. would would say that. I don't think that's a Mm -hmm. gender-specific sentiment in this country
1: when it comes to sport. Is the equity piece a hard Sell, we know it's right, but when you actually put it forward to people and those that you need to educate,
5: I think it's hard from a sense that it's there's history behind a lot of the sport, so you're breaking down barriers that have been around for so long. There's a lot of unconscious bias that exists, so it's how do you change that? And it might be symbolic gestures like if there's given an award to the men, it's the equivalent you give to the women just little things or if you're allocating field time that you do so that the men and the women are at equal share. And I guess we just kind of have to try and change those attitudes and those habits that have been kind of ingrained and in around for so long. Yeah.
4: Sport started in this country and it wasn't professional for mm. males or females, and I think that's the base on which it was built. Um, so the professionalism, um, that the treating it as a workplace piece is just something that's not necessarily embedded in the culture. So if you're starting mm-hmm. to have conversations about Equality, or equity, it's two steps um, removed from the, the way it has been in the past, which makes it a more nuanced conversation um, and one that takes longer with some people.
0: I'd encourage anyone who's either in the room or listening if you haven't read Angela Pippos's book, Breaking a Mould, it's absolutely, it's kind of like a gender equality in sport masterclass. Um, uh, so she does a fantastic job about t- telling her, both her personal sort of journeys. 20 years as a, as a journalist, female journalist in sport, but also talks to a number of the, these sort of topics, so do yourself a favour and uh, <laughs> <laughs> good yourself a copy. That's two
4: yeah, books it's now you have to go buy. of course, game on. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, mindful of Time, so it is one that a piece that we mm. certainly need to, to touch on is the um, pregnancy policy um, and in paternal policy and conditions are around that space. Um, We'll start with the female predominant sport because mm-hmm. you would like to think that you guys are probably having a little bit more discussions and leading the way in this space.
2: Yeah, we've had um, probably more recently uh, players now who, you know, have fallen pregnant but they still want to play the game, whereas in the past it's been just the tradition that you have your netball career and then you decide to have a family and you don't want to go back to netball.
1: So is that a cultural thing? Because when I look at New Zealand netball, they seem to... Had a kid and come back and uh, most of the, half the team have got kids running around or, and it just seems a natural state of play. Yeah, it's definitely you been a popular thing. Twenty-three hours. Some of the girls over
2: there have, like come back after five weeks. Yeah. It's oh. unbelievable. And they're running around on court and everything's fine. I just it's, um, it's but we've learned a lot from them because yeah. they've been able to do that and they just get on with it. Um, but for Australia, it's just never been the way. So uh, in the past, we've had some girls go through, through some really tough situations where they've been pregnant and they've had to go on leave and there's been nothing in place to support them or to help them. And it's just been the clubs who've either wanted to help them go out of their way or not. And then they're, you know, treated probably unfairly. So...
3: That was a, a big
2: thing in our recent negotiations. So now we've I've got in a pregnancy policy where um, a carer for the athlete uh, will be paid for accommodation, travel, any other um, like costs that come up um, to travel with the mum. For We had 12 months in there, but now it's been extended to for as long as the mum is breastfeeding. Um, that the carer is paid for to go with them, um, and that's so that's been a huge thing for us. But also that their contracts are still valid uh, when they go on maternity leave too, uh, and if they have another year on their contract, that has to be still included if they want to come back into the game.
0: Crickets. Uh, I've had a couple of chats with Sarah Elliott, and you know she, I think that great story of her scoring a test century whilst um, whilst. Uh, Breastfeeding at the same time, not literally at the same time. <laughs> but, <you laughs> know, I wouldn't would, would With would <laughs> <she> <laughs> Breastfeeding, going out, coming, you know, hitting a few runs and coming back. I mean, that that's a that's a much different sort of story to the one Bianca's just shared. Mm. Uh, look, th-
4: this is an area that's certainly part of our current um, negotiations and, and we're, I think, we're looking at all sports and, and what they're doing and I think that's the, the power of, of groups mm-hmm. like this, um, Coming together is that we're, we're learning from each other, and mm. uh, you know, in a sense, one-upping each other from time to time. But in the in the nature of uh, improving the environment for, for all athletes, so this is an area we're looking at closely, and we're certainly, um, yeah, um, copying, stealing all the all the good parts of what other sports are doing. Um, it, yes, the the culture of more women wanting to have children and come back and play, and, and Sarah was certainly a pioneer in that area, um, means that it's it's very real, and we're dealing with it.
3: Is there any place in the discussion where, obviously being at a sport, with men and women, very high profile, um, where cricket can lead the way in paternity leave, um, as setting an example and really innovating the space, because it's We're such c- a huge discussion. C- mm-hmm. Certainly
4: looking at gender neutral language through all, um, uh, that, that's what the ACA have been calling for for a number of years now, and, and this opportunity now with the, the MOU, um, likely to be struck in the, in the coming months is, is, um, is where that will fit.
0: From a um, from a soccer perspective, um,
5: yeah, the girls just don't get pregnant. That's what's considered with us, so mm. we're lacking in this space. So you don't need a policy, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, just turn the blind eye to it. Yeah, so no, definitely, and I think it's we need to embrace what all the other player associations are doing. Pick up the ball on this one, which sure.
6: mm. And great from a yeah, remote. it's something we need to look at it in a lot more depth because at the moment the players uh, have short-term five-month contracts and so you don't have that security of employment that you do if you're contracted for a period of years so if a player was to fall pregnant for instance in in the offseason um, there's a question mark over mm-hmm. the next contract so yeah. and that's something we need to look at yeah yeah but we do have in place the um, um, care provisions when if a, if a player does have a um, small child things like that, in terms of the ability to play whilst pregnant, mm. then it's ultimately left to the player to make their decisions in consultation with their doctor. Yeah, mm. that, that was a huge smart. discussion for us about yeah. um,
2: when is the player obliged to tell the club that they are mm. actually pregnant. Mm. And, yeah, it's, it's a huge issue and I'm still not sure that it's... I don't know what's a fair and right way um, for the athlete when they
1: should have to divulge that information to everybody you shaking oh, yeah. your head here, Claire Smith.
3: When you think about welfare, you know, welfare in general, I think whether it's injury or any sort of, it could be depression or any sort of welfare type thing like that, it's probably a similar, in a similar basket in terms of when can you have those conversations? Mm. And it needs to be nuanced and make sure that we do make progress so that people feel comfortable having those discussions with coaches
2: yeah, or at
3: least your team doctor yeah. knows that you are pregnant and, and
2: yeah, I, I can see definitely issues why you wouldn't want the coach to know at certain mm. times because then you could be penalised and not put on the court because of that and so you just don't even want to, yeah, you don't trust that everyone's going to treat that information the way you want them to treat mm. it.
0: But I would imagine, though, that the security of knowing that having a secure contract regardless of being pregnant will hopefully help make that a more... Positive and open conversation when the time's right, rather than you know keeping secrets and
2: yeah, um, that's right. Um, it does It allows the girls to probably even um, just have that security. Um, but for them to, I think the we we found the clubs and Netball Australia. Uh, there's so many unknowns as to where this could go. So everyone was a bit hesitant to lock this in because they had no idea. Does this mean all the girls are gonna go and get pregnant? We're gonna to have to pay for carers for everybody, and we don't have the money for
4: that.
2: Like that was something definitely <laughs> on the table because they're like, what happens if it happens to everybody all at the same time? We're all having a baby for the country. Yeah. Yeah. We're creating the next generation. Right. Not to mention all the triple zero uniforms
4: that you're gonna to have to get yeah. to <laughs>
0: Well, I was going to make a comment. That's if um, you could buy female uh, merchandise uh, on the uh, on the stores, which <laughs> oh. is a, a, a question for a, for another uh, for another day. Perhaps I'm still I'm still looking for my uh, Meg Lanning uh, stars jersey or um, or one of those. Can't can't find one. But anyway, <laughs>
2: uh, do they not exist?
6: Uh no, 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 okay, no, no. no, no <laughs> but. You can get your AFLW, because um, <laughs> <laughs> And in a women's cut, too.
1: I mean. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Any kids made it made. <laughs> <laughs> you, t- you touched on a point there, and it's getting away from the you know, pregnancy discussion a little bit, but the whole security factor of contracts. Now, at the moment, netball, you can... You can t- for this new period, I think it was up to three years. Mm-hmm. Um, but for what I'm gathering for the rest of the sports, it's basically one-year contracts... Across the board, is that um, discussions you are now having um, with the players and potentially looking at making it two to three years to give some security ar- around their play?
4: Some of our male players are um, do are on two-year contracts at the moment, so that's looking. Um, that's something that we're looking to um, at least introduce as an opportunity um, for for the clubs to negotiate with um, with all the players, including the females, moving forward. So yeah, it's an issue we're looking at.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, from a domestic point of view through W League, it's pretty much season to season. So that's something we definitely want to change. From a national team, I think it, it's fine to be at 12 months. Well, I think that suits because yeah. there's such an ebb and flow with people coming in and out of that setup. Mm-hmm. So I think that's quite good. But definitely from a domestic point of view, we need to try and lock it in so they can have ongoing rolling contracts. Just more so they can have, I guess, an understanding of what their career path looks like too so they're not jumping from club to club each year. Yeah. In
6: our case, um, it is season to season at the moment and and to a a degree that's probably the way it needs to be in terms of while we actually bed down the competition. So we've had a terrific first season of the competition. I think the AFL should be congratulated on that. Mm -hmm. Um, We hope that next season continues to go from strength to strength um, and that will allow us to build on all the terms and conditions of employment and whatnot, but we do need to, to watch it and
1: I suppose negotiate it year to year. Mindful of time, yes. yeah, I do have one quick, quick question before Stephen wraps up. Um, you mentioned before I think about looking at other sports and how they do it. Do you guys look at other sports overseas? If you look at the WNBA in the states or things like that, is anyone really you know, leading the way in, in this space?
2: Well, for, for me, the AAA that we have here, the Australian Athletes Alliance, is probably been my biggest support and resource that I go to, and we kind of throw everything around. And I know the guys there that have. Uh, international connections with their sport, with the basketball, with Jacob when he's you know over in America like he is now. <laughs> Thanks for getting on the line. Um, <laughs> you know, like they learn a lot, so they can help us with that information. But yeah, at the moment um, for netball, we are just really looking at what's around.
6: We can we can all learn from each other internationally and nationally, and mm. and, and um, the AAA is a great organisation. And speaking for myself, coming into a an organisation like the AFLPA, which has over 30 staff, and going to the AAA and learning the experiences that other sports and other athletes have dealt with is is really interesting. So we all have different issues, but they're different and the same, so we do learn from each other.
5: Yeah, I think we're quite fortunate. I mean, we have a culture where players' associations are quite visible in our country. If you move on the international scale, like I know in America, for instance, They tend to engage a lot of industrial lawyers to do their work for them, so they don't actually have established players' associations. Mm -hmm. So I think we're probably pretty lucky that we do catch up regularly and we can have those conversations internally, so I think it's great to have that resource within
3: our country. Can I be annoying and ask one last question before we (laughs) wrap it up? I'm just curious. This is a space that, you know, we're breaking new ground all the time. Um, Does the traditional sponsorship model or driving revenue sort of model Is is that sort of really where the focus is? Or is is there an opportunity to really break break the mould and go, Okay, we know there are organisations out there that really support grassroots level participation where there is a groundswell. Let's look at other ways to make money. Like, is that even part of the discussion? Or is it just at the moment we need to bed down and actually get the conditions right?
1: Interesting.
2: Go Brett.
6: (laughs) Um, Good well, I think that <laughs> in the AFL um, system, the, there's been a, a, a huge number of potential sponsors who have actually wanted to come on board, and have seen a real. Uh, we've seen a real interest in um, getting on board with the AFLW competition. It's actually been um, quite hardening. I think there's been um, a number of companies who probably haven't really had a huge attraction to the men's game, but actually mm-hmm. have, have a real attraction to the women's game. So that's been um, been really good in terms of um, the grassroots stuff I, I haven't given that a huge amount of thought in terms of other revenue sources but it's something to
4: consider i think there's an opportunity the opportunity is is to look at the sport holistically i um, mean the, the the fans out there are male and female and the players are male and female so in all businesses there's going to be some areas that are cost centers and others that um, are your revenue generators and holistically that balances out and, and ideally into a, you know, successful business. So I think that there are some learnings we can take from the, the corporate sort of world in, in that space. Mm. Yeah, you know, we
2: explore all options really <laughs> to see how we can do it. But, um, you yeah, know, I, I think that for the broadcast for us it's the number one thing that we need to get right first. Hmm.
0: Well, I think in, in closing, I mean, I think if we'd have had this conversation two years ago, maybe even 12 months ago, I think it would be a much, much different conversation. I mean, from my perspective, sitting back and being sort of involved from, from my work perspective, I think the, the, the successes that started from you know, the World Cup with the Matildas a couple of years ago and then the, the WBBL sort of coming on board that's no doubt spurred on you know, the AFL and, and netball to sort of get um, get their respective houses in order. I, I'm seeing the competitive rivalry in sport actually benefiting yeah, um, sport that. more yeah, more, more broadly, which is just a fantastic thing to, to see. You know, now we've actually got sports competing for athletes and competing for broadcast deal, you know, having the netball, you know, live on on Saturday nights on, on Channel 9, free to air, WBBL on on Channel 10, you know, AFL W on... Um, you know, on, on Channel Seven, I think that's that's completely changed the whole conversation, which is exciting. We need to get the W League back on uh, back on the TV and the WNBL as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, from my perspective, I'm I'm seeing the rising tides raising all boats as that whole analogy is. Um, Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but we've got to we've got to wrap it up. A huge thank you to to all of our um, all of our guests Bianca, clear Katie, and Brett. Thank you for giving up a, uh, an early start um, on a, on a Melbourne morning, and hopefully we'll dial Jacob into the, the conversation <laughs> at uh, at some point. But thanks uh, thanks for uh, for joining us, everyone.
2: Thanks, guys. Thank thank you. You.
0: Thank you.